if you deploy some piece of software and then you go and you watch people use it in real life and something's going wrong, you get two, two, two pieces of information out of that. One is you actually see how people are using it and you can tweak that and make it um, better. But also you can, you can feel a sense of ownership of that thing, like seeing it out in the real world and like seeing actual human beings touch it. It's like, yeah. why else do this work, right? Welcome to The Dirt Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Barnish. And today we have Greg Ross Monroe, the founder and CEO of Sourcetoad joining us. Sourcetoad is a software development company based here in Tampa Bay that specializes in helping traditional companies become tech-enabled. In today's episode, we're going to dive into real use cases around GPT-4, turning non-tech companies into tech or tech-enabled businesses, and how to do OKRs the right way. Before we dive in, I want to give a big shout out to our sponsor, Orchid Black. Orchid Black helps increase the enterprise value of tech and tech-enabled companies they partner with prior to exiting. Now, I have one small request for our listeners. If you find this episode valuable, please share it with someone you believe needs to hear this. Your support helps us to continue to bring in expert insights from around the community for the community to grow our community. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest. Greg, thank you so much for joining us today. How you doing? I'm doing very well, sir. Nice to, uh, nice to see you. Yeah, nice to see you again. Just don't call me sir. Okay. <laughs> Whatever <Sorry>. you do. <laughs> All right. You know what? Let's uh let's jump in with a little bit of the the source toad story here. What you know what uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your in your journey building Source Toad. Yeah, um, so I grew up in South Africa um, with a grandfather who worked for IBM. He taught me to code when I was like eight years old. Started, you know, dyslexic kid. Um, programming seemed like a a good uh, a good outlet for somebody who was struggling with reading and writing, and it really did help actually. So. Uh, you know, you learn that your fingers are different letters on a keyboard and then you learn that you can make the computer do interesting things and makes you feel like you're actually have some control of your world. And uh, I moved to the States, um, worked in investment banks, uh, worked in software companies, and um, in 2008 started my own consultancy, which was never really meant to be anything other than a way for me not to have a real job. And it just kind of... Uh, it just kind of grew. It grew a life of its own at first. Um, as as we were successful through luck or through skill or a combination, and you know, today we find ourselves in a a much more organized and structured company that has a purpose and has evolved from those early stages into a company of you know sixty plus people, mainly in Tampa, Florida, but all around the United States and the world now. And we build software for um, well-funded startups, big franchise companies, and even a couple of Fortune 50 companies. So it's been a, a pretty interesting journey to get here. And we get to do a whole bunch of really fun, interesting stuff all the time and learn about the world. Yeah, that's cool. So let's talk about some of that, some of the uh, interesting stuff that you guys do. Because I think there's been some... Uh, some really cool use cases, really cool stories of a lot of things you've done, but in particular, um, helping traditional businesses or non-tech companies become more tech or tech-enabled businesses. What? What? Um, there's not a whole lot of companies out there that don't want to have some level of tech enablement. What? What? What kind of work do you do in that realm for for businesses that are that are looking to increase the value of their business in that way? Yeah, it's a, it's a really, really good question. I mean, typically what we do is we focus on companies who are, they have some sort of pre-existing product or their, like their value is not purely in the technology, right? So we, we uh, let's say you have a, uh, I don't know, a, a franchise of car washes. I don't know. My son's really into car washes at the moment, so springs to mind. And you want... Um, to kind of enable your customers to get in, get in and out of the car washes quicker. So you want to build a mobile app that you just tap and uh, it let the, starts the car wash and you go through and you don't have to fiddle with the machine and pay. We're the kind of, like that's where we drive a lot of value, right? Is in taking something uh, that could be a traditional service or 
um, or product and tech enabling it. So a lot of companies have actually gone through something like that in the past. And they may have, it may have been in the nineties or the eighties or even the seventies in some of some cases, uh, even in the two thousands. Uh, and the technology that they have is, has now become a burden. Um, you know, a good example is that we have a, a client who is, um, a, uh, basically a, a kind of a type of bank and they have a risk profile management system and they do some, uh, they have a money transfer system and a lot of that stuff sitting in the back room was running off old, you know, AS 400s or, um, what we, you know, old school mainframes. Okay. And so you, you come to a company like that and they're kind of a technology company already. They've got maybe their own, some of their own developers, uh, but the technology that they have is not allowing them to move forward into kind of the modern world of where the web's going and mobile devices or um, being able to embed their technology in their clients' applications and, you know, those kind of things. And so typically what we do in working with companies like that is we'll start in the middle, which is a weird place to start, right? So we'll, we'll build something that interfaces with the old system. And then one, we'll just focus on like one tiny use case for the outward facing system. So we put something in between the mainframe and the user, and we uh, allow that to be um, their customers or their clients to use that external facing application. And then we try and like work with the client to, at the same time, put out a big press release about this cool new Technology. So let's say um, now I'm going to be able to use, uh, I'm going to be able to transfer money using the system with this one SDK that talks to the old mainframe. Nobody knows what's on the other side, right, of the middleware. Um, they're just looking at the cool new shiny thing that they can put in their app. And then you get a press release and you get some press for that. And now people start to like think, hey, who's the sleepy company doing this cool new shiny stuff? And then what you do is you replace bit by bit through the middleware one of those legacy systems. And each time you replace that, you put out on the front end a kind of a shiny feature that you also push out with a big press release. And people get used to the fact that you are now becoming a modern, dynamic, innovative company. When in fact, really what you're doing is you're just leveraging all the stuff that you're really, really good at anyway, and you've been doing for a long time, and just like making it accessible in a different way. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. So what? how does that message resonate at first with a more traditional business that isn't used to that type of innovation or that type of rollout? I mean, I think every business has to be to some degree in the technology space, right? It's just, if it's, um, you know, everyone's got a website at least, and then uh, there's always some way for your, for you to make your business more efficient uh, for your employees or for your customers. Uh, there's new ways of uh, surprising and delighting your clients, your customers, giving them easier ways to pay or um, getting, you know, 24 hour access to your product, whatever it is. Uh, and so it's, it becomes, it comes down to creativity and it comes down to being able to work with a good partner who can, who can kind of see what the next steps are. You know, you, you have, if you have a traditional business that um, sells pool supplies or something like that, right. And you want to, you, you can just have a, you can have an app that, um, you know, can tell you when the stores are open to go and buy the pool supplies, or you can put e-commerce into the app, right. Or you can make it so you can have appointments in the app so that you can come get your pool. I don't know why we're talking about pools now, but um, pools and car washes are on my mind. Uh, you know, so, so it comes down to creativity and comes down to actually talking to your clients, talking to your end users. Uh, for some reason, this gets like lost a lot in the, in the kind of strategic planning thing, which is why don't we actually go and sit down and talk to our existing customers and find out what they want and what would make their life easier. And so a lot of the time, what we do is we're actually going to meet our clients' customers. Uh, uh, a couple of months ago, I was sitting in an airport talking to a lady in her 80s about fur storage. And apparently, you you like 
when you take your furs off, you have to put them into like a special type of storage. Like, I don't know much about that. I don't wear furs, but like yeah, there's a special like refrigerated, <laughs> I think, type of storage for furs. And um, I sat with a lady in her 80s doing sketches um, at an airport where I went to go meet her. And we found and discovered like 30 things that our, our client had not told us about, uh, about mm -hmm. her, their end users just from having this one weird conversation. Interesting. Yeah. Is that, is that a common challenge that you find on the onset of, of some of this discovery work, if you will, is, is, you know, not really speaking to their customer? Um, I think that the people who make strategic decisions a lot of the time are fairly far removed from customers. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's pretty common. Uh, you know, we are, also, in a, we have a different kind of mind space or headspace, which is that when you design something, you need to design it with empathy. You have to have empathy for your stakeholders, your your coworkers, but ultimately you have to have empathy for the person who's going to use it, the actual end user. You know, if you deploy some piece of software and then you go and you watch people use it in real life and something's going wrong, you get two 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 pieces of information out of that. One is you actually see how people are using it and you can tweak that and make it um better. But also you can also, you can feel a sense of ownership of that thing. Like seeing it out in the real world and like seeing actual human beings touch it. It's like yeah. why else do this work, right? So um if you do that enough, what you'll find is that you should actually start at that process, right? Like so we we have um uh we, we've kind of drilled it into our um, the, our team's heads here that this is the way to go. And I mean, just recently we had a, an argument in um, a, a meeting room the other day about who was going to get to run a pothole repair crew. They were not, it was going to go along with the pothole repair truck or asphalt repair because we're building a, a big system for a company doing that. And so the guys want to go out and fill potholes because they know that, the guys driving the trucks are going to use the app or the customers who they're meeting to requesting the asphalt repair. They're going to be, um, uh, they're going to be using a website or whatever it's, however it's going to work, but actually being there on the job site, actually being there and like working, uh, with the people who are going to be using it means that when you sit down to design it and program it, you're going to know who that person is. You're going to have like walked a mile in their shoes and you're going to be able to think a little bit like them. And I think it would be beneficial for all of us to just, you know, go down and do the line worker's job once in a while, just so we can be closer to the work. And then, because you can take that and then all your experience that you have in either strategy or marketing or technology, whatever it is, and apply it in that situation, right? And it's very different from reading a bunch of customer surveys, in, you know, in your, I don't want to say your, your ivory tower or whatever, but you, you reading a bunch of customer surveys and then trying to divine or read the tea leaves of, of what should be the next feature release. What, what are some other common challenges that, uh, that non-tech, non-tech companies face when, uh, when making that transition and, and how can they, how can they think forward towards overcoming some of those obstacles? Yeah. I mean, um, I think the biggest one that jumps out to me, maybe it's because recency bias, but uh, the last couple of strange conversations I've had have all revolved around, you know, what the future of technology looks like with AI or with machine learning and um, how that's kind of different from the typical procedural stuff that we've been doing for a long time. And the, the the technology that, that is out there has now become well publicized enough and prevalent enough in like people's day to day use of it that most people have like a good understanding of what it can do as opposed to like um like let's say blockchain right everyone knew that blockchain was like a thing that was cool and interesting and that we should all be talking about but the average person even average business owner didn't really understand like why or what it would do that would make everything better. It was just like blockchain is cool. Right. Whereas with like AI and the ML tools and some of the, you know, kind of new, even good procedural stuff we have, it's obvious, right? You play with it. You can like, you can say, oh, it'd be cool if my, if I could talk to my proposals, like I'm going to submit proposals and into, I'm going to take my PDF of a proposal to build an Olympic stadium because I'm a construction company. 
I'm going to put it into this tool and then I can actually talk to the proposal and ask it like the best way to solve certain challenges. So like people understand that. And, but there's still like this weird gap about, um, what the legal requirements and the intellectual property implications are going to be. There's a gap between, um, what is doable right now today that you're seeing in like tech demos and maybe what is actually doable maybe in a year or two. And then there's the, my favorite one is the the jump that you have between, well, I would like the system to do these three things. And these are all pretty standard, straightforward things. And then the last one is like some giant computer vision issue or large AI task that is 10 times more complicated than the other three things mentioned as main features. And I, I, so there's like, there's quite a lack of understanding, I think, in a lot of um, business executives about what's easy and what's difficult. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what are some practical examples of how you and, uh, and the source toad team or, or even customers are using things like GPT-4 or other AI ML tools? Yeah. So I'll give you a, a cool, shiny new one that we just did. And then kind of a scary one <laughs> as well, if you want. So the, yeah. the, the first one is, um, we have a, a client who is a, they provide the textbook, the curricula, the grading system, uh, everything soup to nuts for, uh, middle school science students. And they have hundreds of thousands of concurrent users using the system every day. So it's a big, um, complicated, powerful system that is touching a lot of people's lives. And it has like the teacher's notes and it has collaboration tools. And it's, we've been building, building it with them for 10 plus years now. And, um, we've now, you know, one, one of the issues is you want to kind of start dipping your toe in the AI kind of space, but you don't also want to like give kids the answer. So if you mm-hmm. give them some sort of chatbot to talk to, um, you can actually undermine the teacher in the classroom. And so what we've been, what we've built is a system that is tuned to the textbook and to the outcomes that the teacher is trying to um, guide the students to. So the teacher will ask a certain type of question and try and like lead the students to the answer, right? Mm. Try and like help them think it through themselves rather than like, Hey, here's actually how the mechanics of particle physics work or, you know, molecular biology or something. Um, We're going to actually talk about it and see if we can work it out ourselves. So now you want to have a chatbot inserted into that situation for helping the students, but that will refuse to give them the answer. Right. And we'll continue to like ask them questions in the same way that the teacher does. So we have our, um, AI systems reading the teacher's guides ahead where it's reading the student's guides. It's looking at the questions and the answers that are expected because it does the automated grading as well. And so its personality is being developed and we call it's called tuning to actually have the AI refuse to answer these questions. And it's funny. It like, you can beat on it. You can be like a rude middle schooler telling like bum jokes or whatever. And it will act, the AI acts like a middle school teacher. It does not take any BS from anybody and it's not going to give you the answer, but it will help you and give you cues and clues. So it's like super cool. Yeah, that is Um, really cool. But like, I'll give you, I'll give you a scary example, which is that we have a client who um, has been working on a machine learning project uh, to categorize industries and businesses for merger and acquisition purposes. And so they have a, you know, they have a machine learning system that scrapes data from millions of websites and uh, tries to learn about the companies and tries to work out what verticals they're in and um, looks at like LinkedIn data and makes assumptions about, um, you know, where revenue is split amongst various verticals and like what they might contribute to what EBITDA, whatever. It's crazy. Hmm. Um, and our system lives that we've built lives on top of that. And it's the interface for, um, the bankers to be able to, um, call up this information and, and do interesting things with it. Uh, the ML system has taken about two years to build. And we were working with another partner of theirs to do that. Um, and it costs, I don't even know what it costs to build this thing. I mean, 
months and months, every single month they're working on it for the last two years. And uh, our director of engineering the other day said, hey, let me let me take it. I have an idea. Let me take a stab at this. I'm trying to re- recreate what this machine learning company and machine learning system had done just using open AI, just as an experiment, right? Like, yeah. So he went off with uh, one of our senior developers and um, the two of them uh, got together and uh, one senior developer, June, she started working on just something over the weekend and came back like two days later and reproduced, I would say 85% of what the machine learning system had done in two days. So half a million dollars worth of work or something like that just duplicated in two days. And that that's the stuff that's scary. Yeah, that is scary. What was the, what was the feedback um, from the client? I mean, <laughs> um, a mixture between disbelief and great gratitude, but also, um, I mean, like to, to be honest, they, they have enough money where like they don't really ever suffer buyer's remorse. It doesn't matter to them. So like, if it was me, I would have been like, I just spent that much money for the last two years. But like these guys, um, don't care. I mean, they, you know, have like Ferrari yeah. collections and stuff like that, which, but whatever. But so yeah, they were, they were, they were very happy. They were super excited. So what are, what are the limitations, um, and potential risks that companies should be aware of when, you know, whether it's, you know, any sort of AI ML, but it's particularly GPT-4 since so many companies are beginning to use that as their, as their infancy start into, into AI. What, when they're starting to integrate that into operations, um, what are some limitations and risks they should be aware of? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the common ones are going to be um, managing the data uh, and the responses, right? So is the data that I'm being given back from the system accurate? And, you know, we all know that GPT and GPT-4 have um, has a has a tendency to sound extremely confident in its answers. And especially if you've been given yeah. 20 correct answers in a row or like seemingly accurate, intelligent answers in a row, that does not mean that the 21st will be accurate. And, you know, we, we, <laughs> I was using it to code something myself the other day and it pulled in an API. I'm like, that's a really, I didn't even know about this API. This is great. And I, I was so, I, I used it and it was like, Oh, it didn't work. Turns out the API didn't exist. Uh, ChatGPT made up, it hallucinated that API, um, which is great. Fine. So you need some sort of systems in place to monitor um, and have some like human uh, QA on the actual results. So that's always one thing to worry about. Um, ownership rights, IP, intellectual property rights, those, these are, um, I'm not an attorney, um, but you should probably talk to a smart lawyer about um, these kind of applications, if you're going to be using them in a commercial sense, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you, something cannot, you can't, you, how does it go? You, you can, a, a machine or machine generated system, uh, cannot be intellectual property. You can't, uh, you can't, uh, copyright only extends to humans. Like where there was the, the case of where the a monkey took the guy's camera and took a photo of himself and the photo won some prize. And then the guy tried to sell it and it turned out you, that had no protection because the monkey took the picture. Right. Right. (laughs) Which is crazy. But that now when you have a machine learning or an AI system that is generating is learning on other people's artwork to make its own artwork. And you use that, you actually are still liable if, if it was, if it's found to have been derivative of, or borrowing from somebody else's work. So even though the machine made the system and you had no idea what it was building using as a reference point, and then you go and use it, you are still liable. So it is the worst of both worlds. So you just have to be careful and like know what the application is. Um, I think those are the kind of the two big, big ones. Um, and the other thing to know, to know is its limitation, right? Like large learning models are really cool, but they're good for doing like computational stuff around writing. They're not good at doing actual computation. They're not super great at like logic problems or, um, and they're getting better every day, but there are just, they're not magic and they're not like the smart person. You're then like a genie in your pocket. 
Right. And they're not, they're not the replacement for the expert yet. Right. In many cases, they're productivity or efficiency tools to improve the expert's speed or make them, uh, more efficient or effective because they have the expertise to apply on top of it. But, but what happens when, or does it ever happen that it becomes a replacement for the expert? Yeah. Um, yeah. I worry about this quite a lot, actually. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, I use these tools myself uh, when coding now and, um, you know, I'm, I'm not a great programmer anymore, to be honest. But uh, uh, so these tools are like very powerful for me. Yeah. Um, but let's say, for example, the people who work here in this office, way smarter than I am, and way better programmers. And what they're finding is that these tools are really good for like error checking, mm-hmm. um, finding mistakes, uh, and um, writing tests. They're not, they're not there yet completely for full generative, like good, complicated code, mm-hmm. uh, but they're good assistants. That doesn't mean that we're not far off from the fact that they might be able to replace a junior developer, you know, um, mm-hmm. a beginner who is like an, would be like an apprentice at source mm-hmm. And the problem with that is that if you extrapolate that out, that, in the future, you it's imaginable that you'll have human experts, you know, guiding these systems to build things and then being able to check what they're doing because they will still hallucinate and they will still make logical problems and they will still not be able to know everything about what the ultimate um, goal of a system is. Um, they might uh, be able to lack the capacity to hold the entire project quote unquote, in their head, in its head. And they have these things, this thing called context. Um, and so, and I've actually been programming with the systems before where they run out of context, where you work and you work and you work and it's great. And all of a sudden it just starts going crazy. And it's because it just ran out of context. So it no longer remembers what it did at the beginning. Right. Whereas a human being is constantly remembering like why they're doing this, right? And that'll get better. But then the question is, how do you train people in the future? If there's no space, if there's no career path for a junior to become a mid-level, for a mid-level to become a senior, for a senior to become like an architect, how, how do you train people in that path moving forward? Yeah. So I'll give you, I'll give you a scary example. I, I mean, this is kind of stupid and embarrassing, but I played quite a, I played, played D&D. <laughs> um, yeah, whatever. I'm the CEO of a software company. It's not unexpected. No, it's- it's not it's expected yeah exactly and um we're we're playing a version at the moment where like we play this like spy game version and so i built these hacking challenges and i used uh, chat gpt4 to write some code to um break into well i wrote like a password system to break into a security camera so you can disable the security cameras judge me all you want it's fine it's cool <laughs> everyone's a nerd here and um so i just asked it to generate the password protection code and it it did, and it, it encoded the password in Base64 inside the code. And I looked at it, and I'm like, oh, this is great. This is perfect. That's easy to crack. Um, my, my players can go in and, quote, unquote, hack into the system, and it'll be easy for them to hack it. And then what struck me is the thought that if, if, if I wasn't a software engineer, if I wasn't at least some, even a crappy programmer, and I looked at this, I'd be like, oh, great. I've just written, like, a password protection system to put something behind. And that is in no way secure. I mean, like it's fine for a D and D game as a joke to hack into, but it is not acceptable in the real world. Right. And so you have to be an expert yourself to be able to even recognize what this stuff does because it will run and it runs well. Like it generates working code that just might not be secure or will leak your HIPAA data out to the world or something awful, right? So you have to be really, really careful with that stuff. No, that's a, that's a great example. That's a great example. Well, one thing um, that, I, uh, that I've been super impressed by as, you, uh, as you've grown your organization and, and the way that you do planning and strategy, whether it has to do with, you know, AIML or other tech or just in general, you know, the way you run your business is... Um, 
the emphasis that you've put on um, objectives and key results, right? Um, and and so I, you know, I don't know the best way to start digging into this topic, but I've been kind of yeah. impressed by the way you run it. Maybe maybe start with has it always has life always been easy easy street? You know it hasn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> it's a very leading question, but yeah. Oh man, um, where do I start? Where do I start with my romance of OKRs? Um, It's an audio medium, but I've got John Darrow's book over there, which is called Measure What Matters. Um, Yeah, so, you know, as SourceToad grew, you know, like I said, it kind of, we went, we took, I took it from being a small consultancy to being a relatively large software development agency. And, Mm. um, you know, I didn't know how to run a company. I had a, um, I'd only run companies into the ground before this one. And, you know, as we grew, I kind of felt more and more like I didn't know what I was doing. And I had no idea how to like manage a, a company where I didn't know every single person anymore. And like, I couldn't have a daily chat with every human being. And so, you know, I started kind of just reading everything I could. You, I'm a nerd. I like, my mom told me there's a solution in a book somewhere for any problem you have. And I stumbled on um, Measure What Matters. Uh, and to be honest, it's not a great book. I, mean, it's not, I don't really love the way it was written. Uh, not the, super actionable. Yeah. The, it's like mainly about like Bono, like bragging about how great like U2 is and whatever. But, <laughs> but like the last like, like the last, the last 10 pages are life changing. Yeah. Um, the, like the last appendix at the back of the book. Um is amazing, which breaks down how all you need to really do if you want to move an organization forward is set the goals of what you're trying to achieve, break those goals down into smaller steps, and then measure them in a certain way. And that's what OKRs are, right? And to me, like I was a I was I was a, a man in the dark and it was a flashlight, right? And so we have we we absorbed OKRs very, very quickly. Um uh you know there's a bunch of these systems out there. EOS is another one that's kind of kind of similar, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, like line of sight is another one of those, these kind of planning tools. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it, and the fact that you have a tool and the fact that you're thinking on a, at a strategic goal setting level is super important. <clears throat> and it allowed us to kind of break the company down into our overall objectives of what we're trying to do and then work toward those objectives little by little each quarter. And it it helped us grow a ton, to be honest. It like really helped us kind of put a framework around the company that made it feel like one thing rather than a bunch of different teams all just trying to work on client work. Uh, the, the, there's a caveat to this story, which is that at some point along the line, I realized that OKRs are not strategy. <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that strategic goal setting does not mean you have a strategy. You can You can have all the hand wavy. Um, and so many companies do this, which is that, you know, like, well, what do we want to do? Well, we want to be a, um, our, our strategic goals are to, um, be the best in our field, be the most respected <laughs> organization in our, in our, in our field. We want to have the happiest employees and we want to make the most profit. It's like, okay, great. <laughs> That's not a strategy, dude. <laughs> like you, you, uh, and, there was a, I don't remember where, where I read it, but there was this, this thing that I use all the time, which is now, which I call the underlying idea, right? Like what's the underlying idea of a company? So like, what is, what is your like philosophical reason for something existing? And, uh, and, and so going from that underlying idea is really where I realized that that's where strategy comes from. Like source toad is the idea behind source toad is that you get a bunch of smart people together and then you feed them complicated, interesting problems that are brought in by outside clients. And then those people work together on solving those problems, which they find very rewarding. And then the clients will put money into the system to make it work. So then you can use that money to pay those people and to help grow them. And then that creates a, like a virtuous feedback cycle, right? So you have ongoing client work that funds the development of the people who are enjoying solving these problems, which then in turn improves them, which makes them better at solving these problems and uh, producing better outcomes, which then 
you know, puts more client money into the system. And mm -hmm. so what you get is a, a really like warm, supportive workplace that is self-sustaining and that is making a difference in the world and solving problems for real clients or like real issues who, and helping to grow people at the same time. And from there you can derive a strategy. Okay. Well, how do you then get more clients? How do you then, you know, having, having hand wavy goals is one thing, but it doesn't actually do anything unless it's driven by an actual strategy. So that was right. my big takeaway from kind of, I, I, I came to strategy from the opposite direction. I started at goal setting, worked <laughs> out that like it was effective in moving things forward, but not in any one direction. And then kind of stumbled onto strategy, like kind of like discovered as like a, like an emergent entity or something. Yeah. So, uh, whether you're using, whether you're using OKRs or some other type of operating system, what are, what are some best practices for setting and tracking goals to ensure that they align with the company's strategic goals? Oh, it's, um, very, very interesting question. I think the, f the first thing is, um, that having a framework around your goal setting is fine that can be hand wavy. So if you're, let's say your strategy is that we're going to, um, I don't know, we're going to, we're going to exploit every AI opportunity we can in terms of our marketing to use AI to improve all aspects of the company, because we're going, we're all in on being like the best AI company in the world, right? That's a little hand wavy as well, but fine. And you can break that into categories. And, um, those main categories would be, let's say, um, use, AI systems internally, use AI systems for our client work and use AI systems for all of our marketing. I don't know, whatever. Um, that only works if everyone understands why you're doing it. That's the first thing. So mm -hmm. you need that underlying idea that you can explain to everybody. So once you've explained that to everybody, you need to get buy-in from the top and the bottom. So the way that OKRs work the best, in my opinion, is if each if we have like the overall goal set um, by the CEO, that's the CEO's job. The CEO's job is to go and talk to, and maybe this uh, their assistant or CEO as well, but they should go and talk to customers, clients, um, stakeholders, investors, uh, employees, everyone in the organization, and they should be able to know where they're going to go next. Mm -hmm. And they said, they, they kind of um, distill those top level um, goals into, I want to say between five and seven top level company objectives. No more than that in a quarter. It's not durable. And then each one of those are then distributed to the entire organization. Once that's done, everyone understands them and they'll be able to see how those high level goals will contribute to where the company wants to go. Like they should be obvious. My top level, the CEO's seven goals for the quarter should be obvious about and obviously aligned to like the strategy of the company. If they're not, it's not obvious they've done, he's done it wrong or she's done it wrong. Mm -hmm. The next step is for the teams who are going to be up in charge of executing on those objectives, which can be fluffy, right? Like they can be, um, improve customer satisfaction, right? It doesn't have to even have a number to it because the CEO is just saying like, Hey, we need to get customers feeling better about something. That can be hand wavy, but the next rung down, the team who needs to be able to measure that, they need to put a number on it. They need like smart goals, right? It needs to be measurable, achievable, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so they need to break up their, their goal planning in a slightly different way. And the way I like to do it is to give everyone a quota. You're only allowed X amount per subcategory. So I say, I think my, my categories are, uh, you can't do less than three and you can't do more than six per per level down. And that means that a department head, the head of a department gets to pick two goals or two objectives that they're going to contribute upward. And then the remaining three or four that are going to be associated with the success metric, they have to be derived from their team coming bottom up. So you get to pick two as a department head, and then you have to work as a team to pick the, the rest. And that kind of forces buy-in from everybody. Because then almost everybody in the organization has been involved in this in the strategic planning process. Sorry, the strategic goal planning process. I don't want to say that that's strategy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the thing that's like critical 
is the ceremonies around it. OKRs do not work or any kind of strategic goal planning does not work unless it works every single week or whatever it is at the executive level. And then that is basically copy and pasted down throughout the organization. So the way I've done it is every Monday morning, my executive team and I have an OKR planning meeting where we run through every single thing that we're responsible for. Um, everyone goes around and, and we check in um, our uh, key results together and we we see if we need help on anything because a lot of these are cross-departmental, obviously, at the at that level. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talk openly. Everyone understands where we are in the process. And we all check it in together, do our check-ins together. Then our department heads basically have a copy-paste meeting version of that with their direct reports, right? And so I facilitate the OKR meeting at the executive level. Then my department heads facilitate the OKR meetings at their level, at their team, at their department level. And then their team team leads can will also do the same thing in their weekly meetings. And so you're kind of setting the example from the top down that this is important and that also like how it's done. Like, oh, we're mm-hmm. going to see who's responsible for everything. How are you doing on that? How can I help you? What assistance do you need from other departments? Do you need more budget for something? How do you need this to work down? And as a result, it is unbelievably effective, like crazy effective. It's not a silver bullet because without, once again, without strategy, it's meaningless and you can have the dumbest goals in the world if you don't have a strategy. But if you, but from just a purely like execution level, because that's what OKRs are, they're about execution. Mm-hmm. It is the most effective tool I've ever seen because the people at the, at the end who are doing the work that like contributes up, they know why they're doing it. They can see the chain all the way down. They're like, oh, okay, I know if I do this, it'll contribute toward this thing, which will then get this thing done. So they right. feel empowered and they feel like part of the team, but they also only have a small thing to do. And you, but you have enough people doing those small tasks that when they, by the time they bubble up, you've changed the entire company. And if you, we go back, we, everything's transparent in our OKR system. We use a piece of software to do it. There's a ton of them out there. You go back in time and well, you, you see do- quarter, quarter after quarter, uh, you'll just see like how far we've come. What do you guys use for tracking? Um, we use, we use a, a Jira plugin. We, we use Jira, Atlassian's Jira tool, which is a, a software development ticketing tool. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a plugin for it called Upraise. Um, I, it's not the best thing on the planet, but because we're in Jira all day, every day, like our tool is where, um, our tool is like where we live. Right. So we're always kind of logging in there. And so it's definitely good enough for us. Um, all the developers have access to it. so everyone can see it. And the nice thing about it is for us in Jira, in agile, which is scrum, you know, the way we kind of work on um, in cycles, there's this concept of proof of work. And so when you, when you work on something, when you finish the ticket, you copy the link to the, the, the repositories, uh, commit message or the, the actual line of code that fixed that actual thing. Or if you did a design ticket, you paste a PDF of the design into that. And we do the same thing with OKRs cause it's in Jira as well. So we post proof of work for everything we do all the way down throughout the organization. Do you have any, any advice for uh, folks that are in a similar state of growth to you or, you know, um, that are growth stage companies, if you will, that um, can get started on something like OKRs if they're not already tracking goals in a meaningful way? Yeah. I mean, I would say the one thing that you need for starting any new goal, like organized goal tracking system is patience. It doesn't really matter which one you pick. I happen to pick OKRs and I really like it. Um, but it took us probably two years of struggling through through it before we we did it well. Yeah. And I mean, we still find like we're like five years in now on OKRs and we're still tweaking the way they work best for us. So you take the framework, but you can't be religious about it. You have to kind of make it your own. Um, and but that just requires patience. It just requires sticking to it and having the meetings and doing the ceremonies. Um, and that's all it takes. Just patience and practice. 
Do you think that's that 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 um that level of accountability and goal setting and tracking is is a reason why you guys have the culture that you have and and not to give you too much of a shout out here, but I'm gonna do it anyway. The reason that you're one of the best places to work in Tampa? Ooh, interesting. Um whew. yeah, I, I think uh culture is somewhat emergent. Um, right. Like it's, it's, but it's also, it's also intentional. It's bottom up and top down. And okay. I was kind of like, well, represent that, that, um, pretty well. Like everyone is included in where we're going and in the, in the planning and everybody quote unquote up top or at the executive team or main shareholders, they really care about the people who work here deeply. Um, you know, the, it, it's kind of a cliche to say your product is your people, but we're a professional service company who designs software for for others. Yeah. So the thing we have is really smart people. And so um, fostering a really good culture through all sorts of things by empowering employees is really important to us. And OKRs is, is a very strong part of that that system. Yeah, so I would say it's definitely one of the pillars of it. What are the other pillars? Um, uh, for it, dep- I mean, every company is different. For us, one of them is f- like joy. Um, so, you know, we're a nerdy group of people. <laughs> we do like so. We we'll, we'll have capture the flag competitions and video game nights and things things that are um, not exactly uh, that they're like benefits, right? But um, benefits are a way of showing your culture out externally in some ways, like saying what's important to you and saying that you value people having fun is extremely important. So, you know, like video game night or pizza is not culture. Those are benefits. Culture is, and this kind of annoys me because people like often think, Oh, culture, culture is so great. You have a bar in your office. Like that's not culture. (laughs) Culture is like how we treat each other. Culture is like how we interact with clients. Culture is how, like how we will have each other's backs. Culture is, um, our standards of quality, right? Right. When we, or how we release code, that's culture. And that stuff is enforced all the time through, um, you know, a hundred little tiny, uh, good jobs and bad jobs that you say out loud, bits of feedback that you say like, Hey, that was really good. Do that again. And that requires intention. That requires like, what kind of company do we want to be? We want to be a company that, I don't know, um, puts out really good quality code that doesn't break. So that means doing the hard work from in a managerial perspective of like looking at stuff that hasn't broken, which nobody goes looking for things that work and then finding out who did them and then praising them for the fact that it hasn't broken in three weeks (laughs) because most code in most companies doesn't do that. It breaks. And so like you need that intentionality and yeah. So taking the time to find the work, find those spaces to do that work that is useful to use a goal setting system. Like, Hey, I've got to go and find, I got to set aside an hour a week to go and find things that have been stable so that I can give feedback to the person to tell them that they did such a good job here because that will make them feel good. And they will know what it means to do a good job. Yeah. Love that, man. That's, that's good stuff. All right. Unfortunately, we've got to end the show today with our founder five. So I got five quick hit questions for you today before we sign off. So bring them on. <laughs> well, it's being brought. All right. Number one, metric or KPI that you are relentlessly focused on at source at source toad? Uh employee engagement number, employee engagement figure. Good, good. All right. Top tip for growth stage founders like yourself. Ooh. Um <laughs> uh, try and work out the difference between a strategy and goal setting. Uh strategies you can test. They're theorems. They're theories about the world that you have. You can go and test them. Nice. All right. Favorite book or podcast that's helped you to grow as a founder? I mean, as much as I hate to admit it, um, measure what matters is probably <laughs> there, but, but I, I think probably my, um, my, the, my favorite that I've read relatively recently is probably good strategy, bad strategy. I'll get you a, a, a YouTube CD for uh, uh, 
or CD, MP3, MP3 or something for uh, for your birthday, Greg. I, now that I know you love you too so much. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, um, Richard Rumlet uh, wrote Good Strategy, Bad Strategy. It's such a silly name for a book, but it's actually really, really great. I would highly recommend it. All right, next one. Piece of advice that counters traditional wisdom. Ooh, counters traditional wisdom. How much of a rebel am I? Um, oh, I okay. Um, I think that the biggest impediment to most companies is the founder. Um, mm. I, I think that, uh, especially in early stage, like a founder is the most important person. But the second that you can work your way out of your job, the second that you can stop actually being involved in anything that you, you were good at. That's what, what got the company started, the better it is for the company. Hmm. Love it. All right. Last one. What is going to be the title of your autobiography? Oh my God. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know. Software, software and whiskey at sea, something like that. Software. I don't know. Out, out to sea with, with out, out to sea with bourbon and, and builds i don't know something like that <laughs> oh that's great man all right you've given a, a ton to our listeners today greg time for a little bit of self-promotion how can those listening help you out no oh, um yeah i mean you know though this sounds maybe a little bit sycophantic but or maybe not um I don't, we don't need a, a ton of help. I, I think what, what makes us great is we love helping people. When we, we get to build systems with other companies and we get to build things that make a dent in the world. And especially for companies who don't want to be like hardcore software development companies, we are a really good fit for them. We become like godparents to those products and those services that they launch, right? Like we, we love that. Like you get to work on a ton of cool, interesting stuff. So if, if you're, uh, a medium-sized or large organization who needs something to be enabled through technology um, or you have a project that is up in smoke and in flames, uh, reach out to us. We'll, we'll help you fix it. Awesome. How, how can listeners get in touch with you? Uh, they can go to our website at sourcetoe.com or they can email me directly at greg at sourcetoe.com. Excellent, man. All right. It's a pleasure having you on the dirt today, Greg. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jim. Thank you. If you loved today's episode of The Dirt, make sure you rate it on your favorite platform. And if you really like this, go ahead and leave us an honest review. Thanks again for tuning in to The Dirt. <laughs>